This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Give a toddler an iPhone, and it's a good bet they'll instinctively know how to swipe it open and even access their favorite game. But how that technology affects their developing brain, for better or for worse, is still relatively unknown. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett wants to change that. He has introduced bipartisan legislation to fund more research. So what do scientists know already that can help parents? And what are scientists eager still to learn? Dr. Michael Rich is an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He's also the founder of the Center on Media and Child Health. And Dr. Rich, welcome to the program. Thank you. I thought we might start with a practical question. This comes from a listener, as many of the questions in this conversation will. Mary Ellen Williams wrote, We gave our 10-year-old daughter a smartphone when we decided not to have a home phone. And Williams says, based on that experience, she tells parents to wait as long as possible to give their child a smartphone. I imagine a lot of parents must think exactly this. Delay, delay, delay. What do you think of that approach? I think that's very wise because what this is coming out of is an understanding possibly from having the experience with what her 10-year-old daughter did after after getting the phone um, that they don't yet have the full impulse control, the executive functions developed um, to be able to self-regulate. And the problem with smartphones, of course, is that they're not just a phone. They are a computer, a full-service, Internet-connected computer. Um, And kids very rarely use them as telephones. You say that kids may lack impulse control and the ability to self-regulate. That sounds like me with a smartphone. (laughs) Um, Well, it sounds like a lot of us with a smartphone. Um, You know, they are quite seductive. Um, And one of the things that's very interesting about doing research in this field and actually offering clinical care to kids and adolescents and even adults who have problems regulating it um, is that we're realizing that we're dealing with three moving targets. We're dealing with the developing child to adolescent to adult. We're dealing with a rapidly evolving environment technological environment. And the third thing is the the evolution and transformation, really, of our behavior in response to this environment and to the tools that we have. Um, look at how differently people behave in public spaces, in elevators and buses. Um, no one looks at each other. No one has conversations with each other. Um, even Young lovers walking hand in hand will be staring at their phones instead of each other. So we really need to understand how our behavior as individuals and as adults um, is changing us as a society and, and within our own lives. Why are those questions particularly important when it comes to children? Well, the interesting thing is that we know from developmental neuroscience that the environment has a profound effect on the way our brains develop, Um, that uh, we learned a lot from the Romanian orphanages um, where the kids had little stimulus, that their brains actually um, were very different than a child raised in a normal stimulating environment would be. So we are trying to understand what the effects on 
the brain development of children is when they are using these phones. And one of the things we do know is that they are relatively impoverished environments for the kind of brain stimulation and challenges that are raised by the natural environment um, to build strong brains. So if you're, as a parent, counting on a phone to be as present and engaging for your kid as just playing with them yourself, uh, you're probably going down the wrong path. Well, unfortunately, I think a lot of people use these phones as the electronic babysitter. Um, And they want the illusion that there are apps that can be as good as a parent. But Laps are better than apps. Um, And I think that, you know, reading to your child, interacting with your child um, is a far richer experience than anything you could get on a smartphone. Now, I suppose that won't come as a huge surprise to parents, but... Uh, No, I don't think... I I think common sense um, would say, simply from watching these kids on these phones, that it's not the, the best use of their time. Um, the problem is that many parents use them to placate their children, to keep their children quiet, to get their own work done, often on their own smartphones. Um, and I, I think that what we are losing here is what is displaced by that use. Um, what it, you know, how they can learn, for example, in a restaurant to wait until their food comes in, and have a conversation instead of playing Angry Birds or to... Um, have a moment of space, uh, something that we really abhor, which is boredom. Um, And in boredom is where creativity and imagination happen. And we have come to a place in our society where we fill that empty space up with whatever feed, news feed, or social media, or YouTube video is front and center right now. And we are losing a real opportunity, not just for brain development, but for new ways of thinking. So this bill introduced by Senator Bennett, a Democrat, has bipartisan support. It includes the backing of Facebook. You also support this bill. The idea is to direct the National Institutes of Health to study the very questions that we are raising here. What do we know right now about the effect of the use of technology on a child's physiology? Does it affect their vision? Does it affect their ability to pay attention? Does it affect their 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 brain growth? What what can we say concretely right now? Uh, one thing we can say concretely right now is that probably the first and most profound effect we are seeing is on sleep. Um, that they are sleeping less. Um, in terms of number of hours, but they are also sleeping less well um, for a couple of reasons. Um, The first being that, you know, obviously the content um, that they are looking at is stimulating. The second being that these devices emit blue early morning light, which suppresses melatonin secretion, the hormone necessary to slip into sleep. Um, But the third is that many kids are sleeping with their smartphones on vibrate under their pillows or on their bedside stand, and they will tell you every time it is their, their alarm clock for waking up. 
The reality is they are basically on standby for that all-important LOL at 3 in the morning that their friend expects them to respond to. So they are not getting to stage 4 deep REM sleep, which is where we move what we experience today, including in algebra class and at the recess um, and the interaction with other kids, from our short-term memories into our learning centers. And so we are depriving them of completing the circle of learning. Dr. Rich, again, founder of the Center on Media and Child Health, is that the very definition of addiction? No, actually, I I think addiction is a very dangerous word here for a couple of reasons. Number one is addiction triggers images of bums on skid row or junkies in a shooting gallery. It does not say my 10-year-old who has a hissy fit because he has to stop playing Fortnite and do homework um, is in this kind of trouble. So we're not going to get parents to bring their children to care as early um, as that. Now, we do have kids who get way down that slippery slope and drop out of school and get in trouble with the law and have all kinds of problems. But I don't want to wait until they get to that point for their parents to notice that there's a problem. So the word addiction is problematic in that sense from the stigma. But it also is a problem in terms of the fact that we don't have measurable physiologic changes either when using or withdrawing. We have behavioral changes for sure, but not physiologic changes. And then finally, um, when you talk about addiction to heroin, to alcohol, to tobacco, you're talking about a substance that you can be abstinent from and be okay. We cannot be abstinent from the interactive media environment. We need that to function in school, in work. And so what we need to do is not learn, not to detox and cut it out completely, hmm. but to learn to regulate ourselves, to use these very powerful tools in ways that are productive and help us move toward the people we want to be, um, but also to turn them off and to enter IRL in real life um, <laughs> from time to time. Okay, we've talked about the possibility of delaying giving a child a smartphone until perhaps the last possible minute that a parent can envision. Give us, I don't know, one or two other safeguards or practical steps that you think parents should take. Well, I think we should consider flip phones for our kids. Um, You know, let's take a step back and think about phones and, for that matter, all media, you know, laptops and tablets and, and Facebook accounts, et cetera, as tools and very powerful tools. And just as we would not um, toss the car keys to a four-year-old and say, have at it, um, we should not be giving smartphones or any of these devices to the kids until they need that very powerful tool for the things that it does that nothing else can do and till they have demonstrated to us that they can take responsibility for it. And then when we introduce it, we introduce it in a way where we very clearly and explicitly lay out the rules for how it should be used, be explicit about how it should not be used, and decide with the child so they have ownership in it what the consequences should be when they overstep. Hmm. Um, So, you know, just as we have learner's permit for the automobile, um, we should essentially have a learning period and learner's permit for these devices. A flip phone as a learner's permit. How about one more? 
I think <laughs> here's one that will uh, freak everybody out, but I'll tell you the people who've tried it absolutely love it and feel liberated. Okay. Consider as an entire family, not just the kids, taking a digital Sabbath. 24 hours, one day a week, everything off. OMG. <laughs> right? I mean, people say, how can I live without it? And interestingly, the people who have tried it in my practice tend to be people who are in the tech industry or the, or the entertainment industry because they know what goes into it. And when they try it, yes, there is a period going, oh, oh no, what's going on that I'm missing? You know, the, the, they hit the wall of FOMO, fear of missing out. But then they realize how liberated they feel that they don't have to jump to every ping and that they can start to look up from their phones or their computers and see each other. Um, and the concept of a Sabbath is really global, is really international, the sense that there's one day a week where you put aside worldly cares and you focus on what's important within yourself and in your close circle. Um, and, you know, families are playing ball in the backyard and taking walks and just talking to each other. And I think that one of the real dangers of smartphones is that it denies us the ability to be present for each other. If the National Institutes of Health gets an injection of funding to study the relationship between children and media, and, you know, that's all sorts of things. It's smartphones, it's, it's apps, it's websites, it's social media. It's games. It's games. Yeah. What question do you most hope to answer? What are you sort of burning to learn? How can we use these tools in ways that make us more human? What do you mean? How can we be better for ourselves and each other in terms of learning, in terms of social-emotional connectedness, in terms of being present in the world um, for ourselves, for our children, and how can we make the space in our busy lives and in our busy infosphere to dream and to think new things. This is fascinating. In other words, you want the National Institutes of Health not to study the technology itself, but in a way to study ways of getting away from it. No, I want the National Institutes of Health to study us. Huh. Um, to study us and how we are changed by sort of mindless use of these technologies and how we might direct those changes in positive ways by mindful use of these tools, including knowing when to turn them off. Which gets me to uh, the topic of how access to smartphones in particular might improve things for our children, because I, I don't I don't want to make this the boogeyman either. I mean, absolutely used, not. We used to and use the television as the babysitter. And I could be argued that that these phones are are more interactive and might teach us something. Astronomy, for instance. Ab absolutely. Yeah. I think that. The, yeah. And, and I think that it's a cop out to point at the technology as the problem. Huh. Um, as as that wise philosopher Pogo once said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And we need to look at ourselves and how we use even television, but also these interactive tools in ways that promote um, learning. Um, one of the great things that we can do is that grandma and grandpa can interact with even very young children, infants and toddlers, 
once they've established themselves in the child's life, I don't want, I don't think they should introduce themselves on the tablet. But once you know grandma and grandpa, this is a great chance to interact um, in brief periods of time that actually hold the child's attention. Um, there are. Did you mean like fabulous. over FaceTime or something? Absolutely, uh-huh. FaceTime or Skype. Yeah, and and um, but but there are also experiences that can be had. We can use social media to connect with people who we don't understand or know. Um, it's going to be a lot harder for political leaders to send young people to war against a country that historically they didn't know. If they are busy on social media with each other, comparing the fact that they're both 18-year-olds you know, in different parts of the world who speak different languages and have different cultures, but have so much in common. And so I think that if we can, in a mindful way, use social media to connect in authentic ways with each other, which includes showing our vulnerabilities, showing our fears, showing our needs to each other, not just showing off, you know, what a great vacation I'm on or what a good-looking boyfriend I have. I think that we can make this a tool for peace. And I suppose that's uh, more of what you'd like to have studied as well, ways to accomplish that. He's Dr. Michael Rich, founder of the Center on Media and Child Health and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And uh, he supports a bipartisan bill sponsored by Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, directing the National Institutes of Health to study child media use. Sorry, this page isn't available. That's what you see when you go to Trail Trash of Colorado on Instagram. We first reported on the account last summer. It got a lot of attention for the way it would, quote, name and shame bad behavior in the out-of-doors. If you posted a pic of yourself on social media, feeding wildlife, bringing a dog where one's not allowed, or veering off trail, you could end up being labeled Trail Trash. Well, now Instagram has shut the account down. We reached its creator, who once again would only speak on condition of anonymity. He was on his commute when we contacted him. All right. What information did you get from Instagram about why they disabled the account? Uh, So they didn't actually tell me anything other than it was a terms of service violation. And to be honest, I can't really fault them for making that call. What do you mean? Well, you know, it's... A lot of reposted content from other people, so if you wanted to take it down to the most technical level, I suppose they could claim it was some sort of intellectual property violation or something like that. Now, the last time that we spoke, I was very clear that I actively discourage the behavior of a lot of the people who comment on there, so I would guess that, you know, I I think that, like, inciting violence or something like that is against their terms of service, but I would not agree that we were doing that. But uh, I I think that the true reason is they just had so many reports from people for whatever reason and uh, decided to take it down. You did not intend to incite any sort of violence or cyberbullying, but that's the natural effect of, of what it achieved, isn't it? Uh, you know, unfortunately, it seems to be that way. And I had made several posts and several pleas to the community to please keep it at a lighthearted ruckus. But um, 
is the nature of the internet that it never goes that way and that's just something that I never expected and it's just a sad consequence of the things that we were doing. Last year I recall you telling us that you were seriously considering deleting the account on your own. So I wonder if Instagram's decision came as something of a relief. A little bit. Uh, The last time that we spoke we talked about how things were spiraling out of control and then I received a flood of messages, and I'm talking like on the scale of hundreds from people in Colorado begging me and pleading with me to keep the thing going. And so I did, for better or for worse, and now here we are. And um, I've gotten some messages from people on Reddit about the whole thing, and it seems to be that everybody that lives in Colorado is really likes the idea of the account. I'm not sure about everybody, but indeed you announced on Reddit that Instagram had removed the account and that you weren't planning on appealing the decision. Uh, So a bunch of comments followed. One person wrote, keep fighting it. We need you. Others suggested that Trail Trash of Colorado become a website. And uh, many asked if they could make a new account on Instagram and continue what you started. Do you think that this will move forward in any other iteration? Personally, for me... I am going to be done with this aspect of it. It's just, it caused so much stress in my personal life. Um, So, like you said, I was a little bit relieved to see it go. I would encourage anybody that wants to make an account similar to that to be very diligent. And uh, there's there's a lot of negativity that comes with it. You talked about this being uh, a stress in your life. And I I wonder if you have heard the stories of those who were singled out by Trail Trash and and how it affected their lives? Um, Were you able to keep tabs on that? Yeah, I'd I'd have a couple private conversations with people after the fact, and it was about 50-50. About half the time they would just cuss and scream and be very nasty with me, and I get it. The, The whole internet justice mob type situation... I imagine that's incredibly stressful for people. Uh, And then some other people seem to be genuinely sorry. I'd heard mention from people that threats were generated. And then I would keep asking these people, you know, please just screenshot it and send it to me. Never happened. So I'm not sure how much is legitimate and how much was fabricated. But I think at this point... um, the best thing to do is to just let it go and, you know, pursue activism in other ways, more traditional ways. What would that be? Well, work parties on trails, trail building exercises. Um, I think Volunteers of Colorado has a pretty good program where they do maintenance days, things like that. And I would encourage people to, if they see somebody being trash out there on the trail, say something. The more people say something to these people, you know, maybe people are going to start getting the idea that they're doing things wrong and it's not acceptable. Now, you conceal your identity, and some people may find that hypocritical because your account was about calling people out, if not by name, at least by screen name. How how do you respond? That's a valid concern. You know, like I said last year, I didn't ever want this to be, you know, me the justice warrior out there trying to save everything. I always wanted to just be an anonymous thing. But then again, I'm not, you know, I'm not out there 
posting pictures of myself with fires during fire bans or with, you know, swimming in Hanging Lake or something. So, you know, my, my point from last year still stands. These people were looking for attention and they got it. That is to say they were posting these uh, photos publicly on their Facebook pages or Twitter or something. Exactly. Or Instagram. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think you made a difference? I, I think I may have made a small difference. I wouldn't say that, you know, I even came close to fixing the problem, but maybe a small dent. Well, thanks for joining us on your commute home. Yeah, no problem. Good to talk to you. Now, as the creator of the Instagram account Trail Trash of Colorado, he would repost photos of people breaking the rules in Colorado's out of doors, but Instagram has shut him down. We reached out to Instagram to learn more about why, but haven't heard back. It's Colorado Day, the anniversary of statehood, and time for a pop quiz. What do stegosaurus bones, lark buntings, and square dancing have in common? They are all official Colorado state symbols. Some symbols, like the red letter C on the state flag, were not controversial when they were chosen. Others, though, led to a fight. The editor of Colorado Life magazine, Matt Masick, dug into the stories behind these symbols, and he's with us again. Hi, Matt. Hi, how are you? Doing well. The Colorado state animal, the native bighorn sheep, makes a lot of sense. How about the state bird, though, the lark bunting? Was it an easy choice? Oh, no. This was the biggest legislative fight of 1931 that got the lark bunting involved. Uh, There were actually two front-runner birds, uh, the western meadow lark and the mountain bluebird, and then the lark bunting was sort of a a dark horse third-party candidate. I see. A dark horse bird. Uh, Before we talk about the fight, why don't we hear the contenders? So this is first the meadow lark. Sounds perfectly lovely. The mountain bluebird now. All right. And the lark bunting. The lark bunting won out, but as you say, after a fight, tell us about it. Well... Uh, in the 1920s, there was a state bird race going on. Uh, the, the state birds uh, started uh, being named, and everybody was rushing to, to get their uh, uh, state uh, to claim a bird for themselves. Uh, and in Colorado, the state superintendent of schools, Catherine L. Craig, was a real Meadowlark fan, and she designed the school curriculum, uh, and so the kids learned about birds, and then she had them vote on what they thought the state bird should be, and uh, unsurprisingly, uh, the Meadowlark won. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a plant. Okay. And so uh, uh, so in 1931, she's uh, int- getting legislation introduced to name the Meadowlark. Uh, meanwhile, there's another guy in Boulder. Uh, his name is Charles Bowman Hutchins. He was known as the Birdman. His job, uh, he made a living for decades touring the country, playing theaters, whistling uh, bird calls, uh, perfectly, a perfect mimic, uh, while sketching the birds, and his wife accompanied him on the harp. He backed the mountain bluebird. (laughs) Okay. 
And who is the Lark Bunting's, uh, you know, patron? That would be Roy Langdon, a high school teacher from Fort Collins. And he was the most passionate uh, of, of any of them. He wrote a book extolling the virtues of the Lark Bunting. Uh, and when it came time at the legislature for them to vote, uh, he came on the floor with a 15-minute speech just saying how the lark bunting was the living embodiment of all that is great about Colorado. It was like, I, I was going to call it the Gettysburg Address of state bird speeches, but it was actually, <laughs> it, Gettysburg Address was only two minutes. He went 15. 15 on the lark bunting and apparently was quite persuasive. Mm-hmm. All right. And I would just like to thank uh, our writer, uh, Lisa Hutchins, who spent hours at the uh, Denver Public Library researching all this. I want to say that nearly 90 years later, the once common lark bunting population is actually in decline here in Colorado and around the country. Why don't we turn now, I bet you didn't know there was one of these, to the official folk dance of Colorado. Now the two ladies change from the center of the line. Now we'll change right back, you're doing fine. Now the center pole will circle for us, and a do-si-do with a Okay, if you hadn't guessed, the official folk dance of Colorado is square dancing, and this is 1940s square dance caller Lloyd Pappy Shaw. We'll get to more about him in just a moment, but square dancing? I don't know, it, it doesn't exactly scream Colorado to me. How did it become the official state folk dance? Well, uh, that goes back to... Uh, you have to go way back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The National Folk Dance, uh, uh, National Square Dance Lobby was pushing for the square dance to be named the National Folk Dance. Okay, on a federal, on a national level. And they introduced... They they got dozens of bills introduced. Finally, in 1988, they failed for the last time at the national level. They said, well, why don't we just sort of make it the de facto national dance by getting all the states in the union to do it? And uh, through the 80s and 90s, uh, uh, many more states adopted it uh, thanks to their push. I think there's something like 30 of the 50 U.S. states now have it as the their folk dance. I see. So different states can have the same official state folk dance. It kind Square of, dancing. It kind of defeats the purpose in my mind to have everyone the same, but yes. Stegosaurus bones. Uh, we'll, get, you know, we'll get to those in a moment. We should talk about Lloyd Pappy Shaw, it occurs oh, to me. We, so, got, we got to hear Lloyd So there. that's the thing. Uh, uh, square Dance wasn't born in Colorado, but it was reborn here. It was dying out in the 1930s, and uh, Lloyd Pappy Shaw, uh, he was a superintendent uh, uh, at uh, Cheyenne Mountain School ah. in uh, Colorado Springs, and he, he noticed that all the old-time Square Dance callers were dying, and he thought he should collect all their knowledge before they died. He wrote Cowboy Dances, published in 1939 is known as the Bible of square dancing. And throughout the 1940s, he puts together this dance troupe, the Cheyenne Mountain Dancers. They tour the country. And that's really what popularized or repopularized uh, square dancing across the nation. Across the nation. So he was something of a touchstone for for square dancing uh, in Colorado across the country. And now to Stegosaurus Bones. I got ahead of myself there, mm -hmm. Matt Masick, on this Colorado day. What's the story behind this dinosaur becoming our state fossil? 
Well, uh, it begins eighteen. Well, it begins in the Jurassic. Uh, <laughs> uh, in eighteen seventy-seven, uh, the first documented Stegosaurus uh, fossil was found at uh, uh, Morrison uh, Dinosaur Ridge Quarry Number Five. Uh, they dig it up, but uh, these are Yale people, uh, uh, guys working for Yale, digging it up. So it goes back to the Peabody Museum at Yale. Stays there for more than 100 years, but they can't get it out. It's in the sandstone. It's like concrete. Uh, And, you know, getting it out, uh, Matthew Mossbrucker of the Morrison Natural History Museum uh, says it's like trying to get porcelain out of concrete. Uh, So they couldn't get it out, uh, but it finally shipped back to to, uh, Colorado in the 90s, and they're they're making progress on removing the very first uh, Stegosaurus fossil. I see. But this this obviously becomes our state fossil uh, because it is so iconically found here. Yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing some of the stories behind Colorado Symbols with us. Thank you. Colorado Life editor Matt Masick wrote an article about the state symbols. We spoke to him on Colorado Day. That is the anniversary of statehood. And by the way, to mark the occasion, state parks will be free Monday. Let's go out on one of our two official state songs, not Rocky Mountain High, which got its designation in 07, but the original chosen in 1915, Where the Columbines Grow. Where the snowy peaks gleam in the moonlight Six more states are considering legalizing marijuana in some form. Colorado, of course, pioneered the current trend to allow pot use. But the reality is marijuana as a political issue is a pendulum that has swung back and forth for decades. Guess who this is, and more importantly, when he said it. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana, leaving the states free to adopt whatever laws they wish concerning marijuana. Yes, President Jimmy Carter in 1977. He was preceded and followed by presidents who took a harder line. Before him, marijuana was made a Schedule One drug under Nixon. After him, the Reagan administration told us to just say no. And today, the pendulum keeps swinging. Author Emily Dufton writes about this history in her book, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. Emily, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This book is not just the story of presidents, but of, as the title suggests, grassroots activists like Brownie Mary, known as the Florence Nightingale of medical marijuana. More about her later. Um, But goodness, when I read this book, I realized how much the marijuana debate today is like deja vu all over again. Did, (laughs) Did you have that sense when you dug back into the movements? Well, I developed that sense as I started to do more research, and I realized that was kind of the most compelling part about this entire story, the fact that 40 years ago, we did this to a certain extent, of course. Decriminalization that you could hear Carter discussing in one of his public addresses is not the same as recreational legalization that we have today. But nonetheless, the conversations that we were having in the 1970s are remarkably similar to the same conversations that we're having today, which I suppose... You can either take as, well, 
we're still discussing them and, and that's a good thing. Or maybe negatively, wow, we still haven't solved a lot of the problems of our past. <laughs> How far did decriminalization get back then? It went fairly far. It went further than um, than legalization has spread today. So in five years, between 1973 and 1978, a dozen states decriminalized the personal possession of up to about an ounce of marijuana, um, basically changing the punishment that a person could receive from, at times, a felony down to a civil fine, about the equivalent of a speeding ticket. Okay. And there is talk today of the potential of descheduling marijuana. Uh, how far did that movement or question get back then? That conversation didn't go terribly far. Mm. Um, even in the Carter uh, quote that you played earlier, he was talking about the state's right to basically um, choose whether or not to decriminalize for the citizens of that state. But rescheduling the drug away from the Schedule One placement that it received in 1970 was actually one of the first things that was discussed when the schedules were, were originally constructed, when Nixon lobbied to uh, create these, these five schedules in the Controlled Substances Act. He originally wanted to place marijuana there, and it was temporary, pending the results of a two-year investigation into the scope and depth of marijuana use in the United States. So by 1972, when the results were released... And they ultimately came down on the side of decriminalization. Nixon was supposed to (laughs) reschedule the drug at that time. But because he was so philosophically and morally opposed to doing so, he kept it there. And that's why it's been there ever since, really with no concentrated conversation on the federal level about changing that anytime soon. That's fascinating. That was supposed to be temporary. Uh, Indeed, it it turned out to be incredibly Uh, permanent. Um, Mm -hmm. You found that marijuana's political standing is often connected to other big movements like the youth movement of the 60s and 70s protesting the Vietnam War, later on in the 90s with the gay rights movement. Help us understand how, uh, as the subtitle of your book says, the rise and fall and rise of marijuana in America is connected to larger movements in this country. Absolutely. And I think it has worked itself, it has sort of joined itself to these larger social movements over the past 40, 50 years, because ultimately conversations about marijuana are very rarely about the use of the drug itself. It's so much more about larger questions and layers of meaning that we place upon it and its users. So marijuana, for the most part, can be tied up in questions of identity, in public health, in social justice, in levels of incarceration, in um, you know medical necessity, all these other things. So when you have these larger conversations surrounding this drug use, it makes it easier to tie into larger conversations. So in the 1960s, for example, when marijuana, when the cause for legalization was being tied into uh, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the larger counterculture, that was because questioning the validity or legality of marijuana laws spoke to the youth movement's larger questioning of a series of federal stances. Uh So why are we in Vietnam? Is the government lying to us about the necessity of segregation? Is the government lying to us about the necessity of criminalizing marijuana? These larger sort of anti-authoritarian rushes, you know, these larger questions is what brought legalization quite firmly into that uh, sort of leftist counterculture fold. But in the same way... Oh, sorry, keep going. No, you keep going. You're the guest. 
Ah, thank you. <laughs> but in the 1980s, when you saw marijuana joining with the gay rights movement, that was because marijuana, after nearly a decade of being demonized during the Reagan administration, uh, had been resurrected in a certain way as a potential panacea for a drug that, or for, excuse me, for a disease that no one really understood, which was HIV AIDS. Mm. So when you started using a drug that no one trusted, and it was starting to help people who had a disease that no one trusted, again, you saw marijuana align with a larger movement there because it became about questions of identity and safety and, and caring for those who, who it seems like a lot of other people had abandoned. So marijuana activists make a good amount of progress, as you describe, in the 60s and 70s. And then the 80s come along and President Reagan is elected. And it seems that there's a pretty big change in both marijuana policy and sort of the discussion in the in the country. But why? Well, this is fascinating. So one of the biggest things I learned when I was researching this book is that marijuana laws and changes in policy never have really occurred from the top down. We so much associate them with presidents and attorneys general and right. first ladies, um, but it never really works that way. The positions that these very, you know, very uh, sort of large, all-consuming political figures hold on these drugs have always been inspired by grassroots movements from activists who are on the ground whose influence reaches up. So when Reagan was elected in 1980 and he comes to Washington and his wife Nancy is now first lady and she needs a platform, she didn't necessarily choose, you know, anti-drug, uh, adolescent anti-drug abuse prevention because there was so much youthful drug use going on. In fact, it was actually declining at the time. Oh. But she did it because there was a widespread national um organization of grassroots parents who were very, very distrustful and very opposed to the decriminalization movement that had swept across the country in the 1970s. And by the time the Reagans come to the White House, they even have a national lobbying group that was adjacent to Washington, D.C. and Maryland, and were pretty much perfectly aligned to influence how the First Lady then approached adolescent drug abuse prevention with a very strong anti-marijuana stance. And that's really the story of this book, Emily Dufton, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and rise of marijuana in America is these grassroots uh, movements, both on the pro and anti uh, marijuana sides, that wind up being incredibly consequential. One of the characters you write about is a liberal mother in Atlanta who, in the late 70s, is becoming increasingly concerned about the spike in marijuana use among children. Uh, her name is Marsha Shuhard, nicknamed Keith, actually. Um, and she's a major figure in this parent movement you're talking about, right? She's huge because she becomes one of the most powerful grassroots activists in late 20th century American history. This, you know, mom from Atlanta, originally actually from Texas, but a really fascinating person who, despite her, her extremely liberal credentials, ends up leading a movement that becomes almost, um, <laughs> you know, distinctly aligned with the Reagan administration. And she took to this cause because in the summer of 1976, she discovered that her daughter, who was turning 13 at the time, was smoking pot, and she got really worried about it. In fact, she discovered it at a backyard birthday party she hosted for her daughter, you know, really right in their own house. So literally, drug use had followed her home. And she was shocked by this, not because she was unaware that, you know, that, that cannabis was used, you know, elsewhere in the country, but that it, children had such easy access 
access to it. And she blamed this easy access on this culture of decriminalization that had spread quite rapidly and quite vastly across the country that included, you know, a wide variety of paraphernalia in sort of fun, engaging, you know, shapes that seemed to appeal to kids in the rise of all of these magazines like High Times and Stoned Age and things like that. And in what seemed to be a larger cultural celebration of this drug that everyone claimed was, hey, it's no big deal. It's harmless. It's nothing compared to, you know, the heroin epidemic that the United States was slowly coming out of at the time. But she said, no, actually, the conversation is quite different when you're discussing adolescent marijuana use versus adult marijuana use. Mm. And kids were gaining access to the stuff. And she feared for the health effects that would you know, befall them by accessing this drug at such an early age. So ultimately, she joins up with the rest of her neighbors and forms a parent group that uh, has unanimous rules and you know, sets limits for their children, curfews, things like that. And, and, and as we hear drug- becomes like enormously influential and eventually gaining yeah. gaining the ear of the president and first lady with this movement, e- even though there were questions about exactly what the rate of uh, use was among young people. But why don't we talk about another grassroots figure? So Brownie Mary, who I introduced at the top, uh, <laughs> she is closely connected to the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, just tell us briefly about her. Yeah, I really love Brownie Mary. She's she's one of my favorite uh, historical figures in this book. She was an IHOP waitress in the Castro District in San Francisco. Uh, she had a daughter. Uh, her daughter died when she was 19 in a drunk driving accident. And so she began adopting all of her neighbors in the Castro District, the majority of whom were young gay men, because the Castro was really coming into its own as, you know, Harvey Milk's uh, stronghold, as, as, as one of the you know, first real blossoming gay neighborhoods in America. And so she, of course, starts to notice when her neighbors become sick as well. And she realizes that by baking um, cannabis into brownies and by distributing them to her neighbors who are struggling with weight loss and nausea and all these other problems, that it helped them and that it made them feel a little bit better. And so she starts to realize that cannabis has real medical properties. And she's working with other activists in her neighborhood, including Dennis Perron. And she gets busted quite a few times. Uh, (laughs) But ultimately, she's able to to transform her growing uh, sort of social notoriety into a movement to pass the first medical marijuana law in America mm-hmm. in 1996, the Use, Compassionate Use Act in California. And she's a sympathetic figure, obviously. That helps. Yeah, she's yeah. She's always wearing polyester vests. She has thank you for pot smoking stickers and buttons. And she's just, she doesn't take anybody's, uh, she doesn't take anything from anybody. She's a strong woman. <laughs> so we've, we've described the debate around pot as being a pendulum. And, and so here we are today with 30 states that have legalized the drug in some form. And yet we have an administration in office that's not too hot on pot. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has compared it to heroin. Congress, meanwhile, may be interested in loosening restrictions. For example, one of the most conservative members of Colorado's delegation, Representative Doug Lamborn, has expressed interest in descheduling pot so it could be studied for medicinal purposes. And you can't do that right now when it's a level, a category one controlled substance. So at least let's take the step of allowing marijuana to be available to researchers. In the last minute or so, where do you think we are with pot today? compared to where the country has been in its history? And do you think the pendulum could swing dramatically in I don't, in some other direction? I guess the pendulum only has two directions, but... 
Well, I was in Denver actually in February for a book talk, and it was very impressive to me to go into dispensaries and interview people and talk about what they thought they were doing right and where they thought you know they could make improvements. And a lot of the problems in the 1970s, you know, marijuana getting into adolescents' hands, uh, the products seemingly very you know appealing to children. A lot of those have been. Um, attended to through this new reform of legalization. It's very difficult to get into a dispensary. You have to show ID. Uh, they're protected. The products are obviously marketed for adults, which are all real improvements from decriminalization 40 years ago. The other... Pro- Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, But the other issues are potentially that we have to, you know, continue to talk about the effects of racist arrest rates, even in legalized states. Those are still an issue. So not not all problems have been solved. Yeah, indeed. The the notion of marijuana as an issue related to race, who is penalized for it, has gone back uh, as well decades. That's not a new conversation. Thanks for being with us, Emily. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Emily Dufton speaking with Colorado Matters in April. Her book is Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. You can read an excerpt at CPR.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. This is CPR News.